0: Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Bob Dion. Bob Dion is a very close friend and was incredibly inspirational in my fledgling years as a Maine guide. In short, Bob was a professional mentor and guiding light for my ultimate career in fly fishing. Bob grew up in the waterville Skowhegan area, and as an adult, He took on fly fishing as a passion sport, learning the art from his close friends. He worked as a product developer for Forster manufacturing in Wilton, Maine, and was a successful private consultant in product development for many years, eventually deciding to take on a larger role in the Maine fly fishing community as a fly fishing instructor, a fly shop owner, a professional Maine guide, as well as becoming an established source of inspiration for many people in the Western Mountains Maine fly fishing community. Bob has served as a Federation of Fly Fishers casting instructor, a registered Maine fly fishing guide, and has worked in many capacities to help people advance their skills in the sport, be it as a drift boat instructor, arranging courses for split cane rod building, or hosting special guests at his outdoor retail shop, Aardvark Outfitters. Bob offered a variety of instructional courses, seminars, and slideshows and in-person presentations while always trying to promote the outdoor community to build the sport of fly fishing and outdoor recreation with his careful vision and influence. He predominantly guided fly fishing through his career on the Kennebec River, the Androscoggin River, and associated tributaries as well as the Range Lakes region. Bob developed a very unique approach as a guide and instructor and has a perceptive ability to identify people's unique learning styles and offering purposeful feedback in a way that is meaningful and easily translated for his students. Bob is a student of the sport. His students and clients ultimately become friends and he is highly regarded for his deep understanding of his mastery through careful study and research. He has a strong passion for reading and historical research, which has proven to effectively support his teaching for the Maine fly fishing community through his guidance and influence. Bob lives in Vienna, Maine with his accomplished wife, Nancy, and has two adult children, Caleb and Anne. Bob enjoys cross-country skiing and backcountry skiing, ice skating, and of course, fly fishing. Without the influence of Bob Dion in my life, there would not be a Flyline podcast, as he has been a guiding force and ardent supporter of my own professional career in the fly fishing world and has worked by my side as a mentor and friend for over 30 years. It comes with great pleasure to introduce you to a dear friend and beautiful manor, Mr. Bob Dion. Bob, welcome to Flyline Podcast.
1: Thanks, Mike, and I want to thank you as well as other men, You have been a mentor to me, believe it or not, and even though our age is is quite different. And I'd also like to thank Macaulay Lord, who taught us, what both of us, what we didn't know about fly casting. I'd like to thank Joan Wolf, whose school for instructors I attended, and Lefty Cray, who I guided a few times and became a friend. Uh, So it's great to be here,
0: Mike. Boy, you just uh, took a walk down memory lane for both of us there. I mean, I remembered Bob, I mean, we have just, this podcast could be five hours long for you and I. Uh, we have so many great stories to tell. But I forgot, you went to the Joan Wolf School for uh, to learn, uh, was it was it fly casting instruction or was it just fly casting in general? Or just remind me of myself in the audience. Well, it was fly casting instruction.
1: And uh, I'll never forget the day she had us, pick leaves off a tree about 30 or 40 feet away and say, okay, your task is to hit a leaf on a tree, which I thought was impossible until she had us doing it. It was really impressive. She was a beautiful, is, as far as I know, still alive, a beautiful woman. And uh, a little itty-bitty thing, she was 5'2", yet she won the National Casting Championship back in the 50s and she could cast she was a beautiful caster
0: yeah it's funny that you uh you brought her up because uh we're going to do our our fly line flashback in the middle of this conversation about joan wolf uh, i think she's a great uh, compliment to the work that you've done and and what you're you represent and bob let's uh, for for the audience and also just for my own recall remind me how you originally got started in fly fishing I was interested in high school, and I, but I never
1: seemed to get around to it. I was just, I was busy and occupied with other things. And then a good buddy of mine named Scott Pratt from Weld, Maine, took me to Quimby Pond. And we had a hilarious time and actually caught some fish on Quimby Pond and Rangeley. It was a great, that was the, the first experience with
0: fly fishing. And I thank him to this day. And did you just continue taking on uh, the sport on your own, or did you start doing it with other people? What was the next segue after your trip to Quimby Pond? Well, Mike, I'm going to admit to you something I've never told anyone else
1: uh, directly, and that is I, I lost my first child, uh, Brooke, when she was 14 years old, just turned 14, and to a brain tumor, which was a result of childhood leukemia. At any rate, uh, I, I like to think that fly fishing saved my life because basically mm-hmm. when you have a family member like that pass away, it's, it's tough. It really is tough. And uh, fly fishing became a passion in which I could, I could become completely absorbed, and it really helped me through a tough time. And I'll, I'll always appreciate that about fly fishing
0: absolutely i think i met you not long after brooke had passed and it it did it felt to me like your family was um was a broken puzzle you were together but you were all not connected uh just something had exploded and uh you all were were great uh as individuals but it just seemed to me like you were fractured in some way i can't think of a better way of explaining it other than it just it was an awful thing to be around. I can only imagine the experience of losing your child, especially when she lived as long as fourteen. Brooke just uh, that losing her must have just been a hole that took forever to fill and probably never has.
1: That's a good way of saying it, Mike. And it wasn't just me; my wife was devastated, of course, and my children were too. Uh, but happily enough, we we all seem to have learned how to deal with it. And uh, I attribute fly fishing with really kind of saving my life never said that before
0: i agree i think i think you're i think it's true i think in some ways fly fishing has saved a lot of lives i know that when i first started fly fishing i would lie cheat and steal come home at one o'clock in the morning i mean i was i was badly addicted and now um, i'm 53 I won't fish uh, alone, um, I, I insist on fishing because I really fly fish just for the uh, companionship and I, and I enjoy that part of it more than catching fish now.
1: It's funny how as we age, uh, well, the, Joan Wolf told me this, she said, the first thing you want to do as a fly fisher is catch a fish, then you want to catch many fish, then you want to catch difficult fish. But the last stage always stuck with me. She said, you want to catch any fish with grace. And be it a little fish or a big fish, sure, I like to catch large fish. But I also enjoy the intimacy of catching the little, tiniest, so-called junk fish. I really get a boot out of it. It's, they share something of their soul with you
0: um and it's a way to visit another planet really absolutely and you know of course we've done a podcast with bob mallard and he's a great example of uh the progression that you just described you know bob started out a pond fisherman and then went all across the big rivers and drift boating and doing all sorts of stuff and traveling around the world and catching gigantic fish and now he's right into a little snoopy fiberglass rod on a one weight and uh, going into these little brook trout streams and just trying to catch a little angel, you know, a little angel in fish's clothing. Well, you
1: can't help but think of him because Bob has truly probably caught more big trout than than all of us put together. I mean, he's got a million photos of great big fish, any of which would be a, uh, a trophy. And now he's passionate about small fish, little streams intimate environments and I find myself
0: going the same way
1: and I I bet you do
0: too yeah that's that's exactly right but what I'd like to do Bob uh, if you're willing is let's let's go back uh, before you started uh, Aardvark Outfitters which we'll talk more about later but uh, let's let's educate the audience a little bit about your background with consulting and maybe some of the work you did with Forster manufacturing and product development because I know I, I was very interested to hear you tell me the story about working with croquet sets and, and lawn, lawn games and stuff. Just share, share the, back, the background of that with the audience, if you would. Well,
1: uh, Forster Manufacturing in Wilton, Maine, was the world's largest manufacturer and seller of croquet, which was an odd thing because here we are stuck way up in Maine. And I mean, when I say we had market share, we had over 80% market share in the world. We could make croquet sets cheaper than the Chinese could at one time. And the the new regime came on board Forsters and they decided we should be more than just croquet, we should be lawn games. And that's kind of where I came in. I had credibility within the company. And these guys were sort of new folks. And they wanted someone credible to to develop products such as horseshoes, bocce, uh, volleyball post and net systems, bad mittens. And I'm proudly the inventor of the adjustable croquet uh, uh, tetherball set, which basically had an adjustable pole and was a moderate success. But at any rate, <laughs> I developed all those products for Forster, and uh, it was a great experience in my life. It was, it was the very demanding, but I learned a lot. And I'm always grateful for that. I was uh, The company was, like many privately held companies, was sold and I was downsized, which yeah. I'm not bitter about. They treated me fairly. Yeah. And then I became a consultant, which brought me to Bentonville, Arkansas, at just the time when I was truly falling in love with fly fishing. And as a result of that consultancy, Well, I don't know, consulting. Uh, They offered me many jobs down in Arkansas and in New York State and pretty much anywhere I wanted to be. But I didn't think my family would survive that ordeal of moving at that point. We were pretty fragile. Um, So I I was falling more and more in love with fly fishing, and I I took a big leap. I said, well, if I'm ever going to do it, I'm gonna do it now. And so I uh, parlayed my love of fly fishing into a fly shop. And I traveled out to the world's largest fly fishing show and the best consultant in the world about fly fishing said something to me that really rung true. He said if you think you're going to own a fly shop and do a lot of fly fishing, you're wrong. And I said No, I'm not. I am going to fly fish no matter what. And just as you said earlier, I would lie, cheat, and steal uh, to fly fish. I was that much in love with it. And thankfully, my wife finally understood and knew that when I came home at midnight with a row of miniature machine gun bites around my neck, that I didn't even notice that I really was fly fishing, uh, and that led to, uh, as I say, to opening of Aardvark Outfitters, which was a fly fishing store in Farmington.
0: Exactly, and that that's actually when we first met. I was working in the same building, and there was a, uh, a similar store, uh, Red Oak Sports, that I was working at full-time, and uh we re- we had some moderate success things were going well we were mainly selling canoes and outdoor products like camping stoves and tents kayaks hiking boots things like that and bob uh was going to uh move into what eventually became just the fly shop part of the uh of the building and it was a one room area he renovated it uh big open windows great photography uh, had all the right stuff, sage rods and, and and different price point rods too, so that you know you could really sell things to all the you know the whole audience, uh, rich or poor. And um, they what few people know is that uh, Bob invent really for Farmington, he was the first person to bring to Franklin County the modern tapered leader. Uh, before then, everyone had only used maxima um, tippet for at the end of their fly line. And so uh, six months away from the Chester Greenwood Day where they celebrate the invention of the earmuffs, they have the Bob Dion Day. There's a big parade in town uh, with a tapered leader and the women wear tapered leader hats and the men wear a tapered leader, uh, basically all the leaders crocheted up into a necktie. It's quite an affair. Uh, but Bob brought the tapered leader with our outfitters to Farmington. And, and the parade Bob is in June, I wanna say, right? <laughs> yeah so the last the last minute there was a complete farce people but it it, it is kind of true because bob bob brought a lot of uh, innovation into uh, maine when it come when it came to fly fishing he knew he knew a lot about about the sport and how it was advancing much like bob mallard did the same thing and and even guys like mike holt and danny legere were really starting to pioneer into modern modern stuff fluorocarbon uh indicators stuff like that but uh so anyhow i met bob and um I didn't want to work for this other guy anymore i i just fell in love with bob i mean he's to know him is to like him uh he was gentle uh he i knew he was going to be successful i wanted to be a part of that success i also had more passion for fly fishing than i did hiking or canoeing Uh, i had already been a guide at that point but bob aspired to become a guide and i think through our each other's influence Bob got into guiding. So let's talk about that a little bit, Bob, with uh, the first some of the first things that uh, we were doing with Art Arc Outfitters. Uh, uh, Slideshows. You tell the story. Well, picture uh, an outdoor sports uh,
1: shop that I had a, a fly fishing store, and in the winters, I, I focused on cross-country and backcountry skiing. And beside me was Red Oak Sports, and they did Kayaks and canoes and outdoor other outdoor items, and I noticed Mike was just a hard-working guy, uh, very smart, very flexible, and I, I got the sense that he was wasn't being served well by the southern fellow, who was just trying to run a business. Not his fault or anything like that, but anyway, uh, it came that Mike wasn't. Um, Red Oak Sports decided to move, and Mike didn't want to move uh, locations. And I scoffed him up. Mm-hmm. I'll be dead honest. I said, this guy has a lot of potential. And we were both falling deeply, more deeply in love with, with fly fishing. I read everything I could about fly fishing. And Mike was is still to this day one of the best casters I know. So we hit it off. And then that Thank you. partnership really resulted in a couple of different things, which was we introduced snowshoes. Mike did the best ad, radio ad I've ever done. And we had people coming from all over to buy snowshoes from us. And at one point we had the largest selection of snowshoes in New England, I'm proud to say. And people did really come from all over to buy from us. We also had a lot of people traveling to the Rangeley area, to the Kingfield area that soon learned to stop in and buy a handful of flies and get some advice about about fly fishing. Um, so the growth was was good, and it was a big step to take over the rest of the of the store, and we had to add other items. We also introduced, uh, he and I introduced um, so-called cataracts, Um, and that led to us going to the New York show, New York fly fishing show, and we, I'll never forget, we didn't have a chance to go to the bathroom all day long. We didn't have a chance to eat lunch. People were interested, which in a backhanded kind of way led to drift boats because one of the drift boat manufacturers noticed how busy we were and how pretty good we were at at selling. And he said, Hey, you want to sell drift boats? Well, I only knew about drift boats, uh, from my reading and out West, you're more likely to see a drift boat in someone's yard than you are a canoe. So this was relatively new to us, and we really took that ball and ran. Then we kind of were at the right place at the right time with back country skiing, which led us into Telmark skiing, and there was a growth curve there, which we we both loved. Mike was a great skier. I was less than average skier, but we shared the passion for, uh, Telemark skiing and caught the wave, so to speak. Um, so that's kind of, uh, an outline of what happened with Artvark our, Outfitters.
0: It is. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think isn't obvious, uh, unless people know you, Bob, or even myself, is that one of the reasons that we were successful with Telemark or with, uh, fly casting or drift boats or anything is we always knew to go and kneel at the uh, at the feet of the masters. As an example, uh, we worked very closely with the owners of high drift boats and Clacka Craft drift boats. Uh, we were on a first name basis with uh, the people that were really leading in uh, Federation of Fly Fishers. You know, so I want you to think, uh, you know, the people on the board of governors, as well as uh, people like Rod McGarry and 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 uh, others around the country, and going to workshops. And then, of course, when it came to uh, telemark skiing, I uh, I did the Dickie Hall classes, and he, at the time, and probably still is regarded as the godfather of Telemark skiing and one of the finest modern Telemark skiers you'll ever ski with. Like, I mean, there was Paul Parker, too. Remember we went and saw Paul Parker in Vermont at one point? You and I drove over there to um, yeah. one of the retail stores in uh, Burlington and saw Paul Parker. And he was an interesting uh, guy as well. But, again, to the the theme is that uh, we always knew that in order to to gain momentum in whatever department we were trying to build, uh, either in our own lives or just for the store, uh, to really go to the feet of the masters and learn from them. And that, that paid dividends for us, you know.
1: It sure did. And I'll never forget going uh, down to New Hampshire with you. And we were very excited about fly fishing and we were both pretty competent homegrown fly casters except we didn't know what we didn't know and boy did we learn a lot not only yeah. about oh, casting man ourselves but also about how do you tell other people how do you teach them how to how to cast and
0: it that was an eye opener for both of us absolutely it was i remembered uh the thing that uh, one of the things that lefty Cray always used to say and it relates to what i'm telling you that so i can tell you this is uh, lefty used to say double hauling only teaches you how to throw your problems further away and uh, I learned how to double haul from my neighbor when I was maybe 14 or 15 so i was i was quite the double hauler i looked like uh you know doing my hands are going all over the place and i remembered mac lord just casually walking up to me we're all casting out on the lawn of this ski resort it was summertime and it was a rainy day I remember and he walked up behind me and kind of leaned into my ear on my left side my non-casting side and he said stop double hauling and I stopped with my left hand and I fell apart I didn't I didn't know how to fly cast and he he just saw it and he walked away and I was a broken i was a broken human being. I was a broken fly caster, and then he came back and he said, "You need to learn how to cast only with your right hand before you start using your left hand and oh man, that changed everything for me at that point point. and I do that to this day. I have guys that come and you know hire me to to guide them and they're big time double haulers and i'll and i 'll see they really have a terrible you know loop um, or they're just putting way too much energy into it so it's those little pieces we could go on and on about uh, fly casting it 's just wild, but bob i um I want to talk to a little bit more about some of the programs we did that were not fly fishing related just because they 're also interesting. Uh, do you remember having Garrett and Alexandra Conover and some of the other slideshow presentations because I thought they did a lot to bring the community together at Aardvark Outfitters.
1: Uh, they sure did, and and that was a really interesting part of Bark Outfitters because we wanted to share with the community some of the experts uh, really from Maine and the surrounding area and we wanted to show people what was possible as an example uh, not only the conoverse but uh, Jimmy uh, who climbed or uh, partially climbed Mount Everest and was an extraordinary climber and he was from he was a mailman in Farmington Uh, so we had a lot of fun with those Uh, presentations and we did a bunch of them and while they didn't really add to the coffers as much we definitely added to the community uh, exposure to fascinating aspects of outdoor activities I believe. I should mention Mike too that it it led us to our most successful class which was led by Marty DiMuzio on becoming a main guide. And I'm very proud to say we put over 700 people through that program and we had the highest rate of uh, people that passed the test to become a main guide and really met a million other guides. Uh, And every one of them seemed to add something to our guiding as well, it was a great experience, and very successful.
0: Absolutely right. So we also had uh, Lila and Carol Ware on, and they were, of course, you know, they're re- they're revered as having probably one of the largest uh, main guide classes in the state. And uh, but I, I think that for all the classes, I don't care if it's LLB, and I even understand that Celine has a guide class now. I think the guide classes, wherever they are, they're going to be good. It's more like they're regionally based. So if you lived in the Franklin County, Farmington area, you'd come and take our class. That was just the right fit. And Marty DiMuzio, who was from um, New Sharon, I believe, uh, was our instructor. And Marty was great. And he it was at a time in, in Marty's career where he was looking to do some mentoring and Uh, that the guide class was a perfect fit for him, and he was so damn methodical, Bob. I mean, he just had, he got everything right, and he he was just such, so thorough. I don't know if that's the right word for it. Fastidious, maybe? Absolutely fastidious,
1: and his method of teaching map and compass, which is one of the hardest part of getting your main guide's license, was absolutely foolproof. I think we... 95% 95% of the people, 98% of the people passed Map and Compass when they took that course. And I'll always be grateful for him. And not only to for teaching others, but for also teaching me about Map and Compass.
0: Yes, exactly. I agree with that. Bob, I think we may be at a, at a good point to take a short break and uh, come back. And I want to talk to the group a little bit more about uh, what we did with drift boats, drift boat guiding, uh, and the New England Driftboat Center, and talk about a few other things that uh, help to decorate the story that we both share together and who Bob Dion is as a person. Thanks,
1: Mike.
0: This fly line flashback is about the famous fly casting legend Joan Wolfe. After her first fly casting lesson from her father, she developed a technique under the guidance of mentor William Taylor and instructors at the Patterson, New Jersey Casting Club. At age 16, Joan was crowned New Jersey state champion and also competed in her first national championship in Chicago. She went on to win the first of what became 17 national titles from 1943 to 1960. In 1947, she scored 99 out of 100 points at a national accuracy championship. That year, she achieved a personal best with a 120-foot cast in one of her first distance casting contests. Four years later, she gathered further interest from the sporting community when she took the National Fisherman's Distance Fly title with a 9-foot fly rod against an all-male field with a record cast of 131 feet. In addition to competition casting, she was known for trick casting. With a fly rod, she sliced bananas, broke balloons, even snapped a cigarette from the mouth of the MC Johnny Carson on the television game show, Who Do You Trust? In the 1960 New Jersey State Casting Championship, Joan performed a 161-foot cast that would have been a record for women if the cast was placed in a championship category. Joan first interacted with Lee Wolf, a famous angler and cinematographer, filming together. Later, the two were married in 1967, traveling and fishing across the world together. This period of time included both Joan's introduction to salmon fishing, but also her extensive promotion of women's fishing clothing and equipment. In 1978, Joan and Lee moved to Lou Beach, New York, and the upper Beaverkill River, where Joan carried out her plan of opening a fly fishing school teaching was a shared passion for the Wolves, something they had done sporadically before opening the school. Joan created a curriculum and terms that broke the cast into two parts. After the death of Lee Wolfe in April of 1991, Joan was grief-stricken and concerned about the future of the school in Lee's absence. Robert Redford's film A River Runs Through It was released the year after Lee's death, and its impact on the school was profound. Numbers of women filled all 10 sessions with a newfound interest in fly fishing. Joan was inducted into the International Game Fish Association Hall of Fame in 2007 and the American Casting Association Hall of Fame and is widely regarded as the architect of modern day fly casting mechanics. Joan Salvato Wolf is a fly fisher, author, and educator and is regarded as the first lady of fly fishing. And now, Back to the second half of our episode.
1: Well, I'd like to start out by saying I will never forget the day the first drift boat came in, Mike. We were like kids at Christmas. You and I both were. We were just about jumping up and down and clapping our hands because we knew an adventure was in front of us. We were pretty experienced fly fishers at that point. But we had, I had no idea how much fun a drift boat could be here in the waters of Maine. I had no idea. So we went on. I think you sold more drift boats than anyone else in Maine. I believe that to be true. And uh, I sold a few myself. And we had, we learned and learned and learned. And that, you were a great rower because of your uh background as a rafting guide and a kayak star really. Uh, So you really, you taught me how to row on the East Outlet and I'm forever grateful uh, because I couldn't have done it without you. There's no way I could have made it down that river without you. So uh, here's an official and heartfelt thank you. Uh, At any rate, uh, the first Mm -hmm. drift boat led to a sale of a bunch of drift boats, which then again led to Um, teaching a class on how to row a drift boat and had the privilege of teaching many of the people that are guiding today still, even including Rocky, uh, who was the founder of the Two Fly Tournament, which I know you won many a time. And uh, I was lucky enough to win once. Uh, And we had a lot of fun and met a lot of... These guides were pretty accomplished but they didn't really know how to row a drift boat. And we were we were helpful to them. Um, I'm also really proud of uh, teaching a bunch of uh, kids, uh, high school kids over at the L.L. Bean Fly Fishing School in uh, Solon. And I'll never forget the day one of them walked up to me and said, hey, I got in Montana in the summer and I go to South America in the winter, and I'm guiding, and I owe it all to you. I just about cried on the spot. So that was a great part of my life. And also it led to my appreciation of, of women fly fishers. As I studied the history of fly fishing in Maine, I realized that women fly fishers from Maine were the most important fly fishers, women fly fishers on earth. And I really felt that they were underappreciated and really needed some exposure. So I started an event called women fly fish Maine. And I invited an expert on fly rod Crosby, one of our, the most famous fly fishing women of all time. And, uh, We did, uh, we had a woman named Glenda Allen, who came over and talked about fly tying. We had Robin Williams, the most famous, uh, the first uh, striper fly fishing guide in Maine, who was a wonderful guide, still is as far as I know. And we we really had a great time exposing women. Uh, Oh, I should mention Bonnie Holden. We had her do a fly fishing class which was outstanding. And we're able to get a bunch of new
0: women interested in fly fishing, and I'll forever be proud of that. So for the audience, i just do a small correction, Bob. You said uh, Robin Williams, and I think you meant to say Robin Thayer from Richmond, Maine. She was the first woman striper guide. So, yeah, that was a wonderful program, and I always stepped right out. I wouldn't attend it because there was no room. I didn't want there to be any evidence of a... um, of a Y chromosome at that event so I stayed right away from it, but you did a great job. Uh, you mentioned Bonnie Holden, you mentioned Robin Thayer, you mentioned Glenna Allen um, and also another important woman uh, that had uh, a relationship with the shop and with ourselves of course was Kathy Scott and David Verenbergle, her husband and Kathy, uh, they had some fun classes for uh, teaching people how to make their own cane bamboo uh, split cane rods.
1: Also uh, Celine Dumain who probably at this point is Maine's most famous fly tie. Uh, She ties without the use of a, of a vice, which Carrie Stevens who uh, invented the gray ghost up at Upper Dam in Rangeley. So we still have that continuing tradition of wonderful women fly fishers, which to this day, I still feel is underappreciated.
0: Absolutely. I I agree with that. Celine has started a shop in Gardner. I'd like to just uh, give her a little bit of promotion on the podcast. Uh, Celine uh, has always done well with fly tying. Uh, She did uh, run a a shop at one point down at Fort Andros in in Brunswick. And I think that the recession gobbled her up. And then she's going to take another shot at it. She's opened a shop in Gardner. And uh, I think we should all make it a point to go and leave a little bit of money behind when we go to visit her.
1: Absolutely. And I had the pleasure of having uh, Celine as an employee for a bit. And we would howl when something came in to put together because she had an engineer's mindset. And she could put together anything, make sense out of anything. And I was nothing but thumbs. So I was happy to let her put things together. And uh, she was also a wonderful designer of flies, still is to this day, and I wish her good luck in her new enterprise.
0: Yeah, uh, so I think I think yeah, I think Celine's going to do really really well. Uh, I mean, you can't, you're, no one's going to make a million dollars running a fly shop uh, unless they start with two and get out after a few years. But um, but she, we do wish her the best. And um, a couple of things I'd like to do, Bob, is I want to talk, uh, tell the audience a couple of funny Bob Dion stories. One of which was I got invited to join Bob and his group of friends, uh, old friends he'd had, to go to Mount Katahdin to go winter camping. And I had never, I had never been to Mount Katahdin, uh, and I had never been winter camping. And we ended up getting uh, in a lean-to at uh, Abol Stream Campground. And I bet it was 20 below zero. And Bob and I shared a tent together and woke up the next morning. And I'll tell you, it was survival. (laughs) Do you remember that, Bob? I do. And the
1: tent, believe it or not, was much warmer than the lean-tos. I had spent a night in a lean-to, and the cold from underneath was unbelievable. And, yes, you're not exaggerating. It was 20 below that night. Uh, but it was relatively, believe it or not, it was relatively warm. And yes, death was looking at us in the eye. (laughs) We hadn't had the right
0: gear. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. And we had, um... We had a couple of telemark festivals. We did a telemark demo day at Sugarloaf every year that we both attended together. You would always come up and we'd run them together. And we'd get the, the telemark skiing for the listening audience is a, is a unique type of skiing where it's very reminiscent of what skiing originally was in, in Norway, and that your heel was not locked to the ski uh, like a modern downhill ski. A telemark skier is known as a free heel skier. And so if you ever see someone coming down the hill and they're kind of have an esoteric style and their heel is coming up, that's known as telemark skiing. And so we, we kind of pioneered modern shape uh, telemark skiing at Sugarloaf and Saddleback in the area. And Bob uh, did a great job managing the store so that we were successful at that. And, and I was good at teaching people how to do it. And we really had a lot of fun, and the demo days were fun. And we had a lot of close friends with, like, Bill Pierce and Crush, uh, Crusher Wilkinson and Jano and, and of course, uh, Steve Prince working at uh, at Saddleback at the time and whatnot. We just we, – we had a great group of people around us in Farmington, and they – if nothing else, if we weren't making money, we were having a hell of a lot of fun together.
1: Mike, imagine my surprise when the other day I met uh, a, a distant – Uh, in-law family member and he turned out to be uh, one of these jumper guys and I think he told me his highest jump no he was a uh, I'm sorry he was a diving guy also a ski jumper but he told me well probably the highest I ever dove from was 150 feet and I (laughs) love Art Vark Outfitters and to this day I still have people talk to me about Aardvark Outfitters. So you and I really did have an impact on the community.
0: Yeah, it was funny. Um, you know, we had we had, we always had a lot of fun. And uh, Aardvark definitely was a unique business. Uh, I've talked about it with other people that it, it's a real struggle. One of the things that you did, and I also know that Bob Mallard did it too, is you didn't go down the Orvis pathway. You didn't just buy all of your products from one vendor. Uh, you did it. You 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 sought out. I mean, the the motto of the shop for the audience was unusually good gear. Uh, Bob came up with that, and I loved it. It really was true, and we and we lived we lived with that that motto that everything we had had to be good, um, you know. And so we had the largest selection of snowshoes in New England, so you could buy classic wooden snowshoes that had the uh, the rawhide. And we bought them locally, and we also bought them from some other people in uh, New England. And then you could also buy modern mountaineering snowshoes. And I remember this one guy comes walking in. He was definitely a a Franklin County old-timer. And uh, he's looking at the wooden snowshoes, and he's looking at the aluminum snowshoes with with a hypalon webbing on them. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to be putting that lawn furniture on my feet.
1: I remember that, Mike, and that leads to the, the commercial to, that I alluded to earlier about, let's go to camp. And I'm telling you, we had people come from all over the state to buy snowshoes from us because of that commercial. And uh, again, I'll, I'll say thank you because it was your uh, ability to really and truly be the true Mainer that you are and uh it came across in that commercial it was fun
0: yeah i i won't be able to recall it because it was definitely scripted but i remembered it was about it was valentine's day and and we were we had some more inventory than we needed and valentine's day is really the beginning of the end of the snowshoeing sales season which is not really the end of snowshoeing season but we wanted to sell some snowshoes that we had and i got talked into doing this ad for i think it was it was wtos at the time because i remember uh I remember it was 105.1, because they were kind of the station that people were listening to. It wasn't quite the grunge station that it is now. And, uh, you know, uh, Mother and I wrote, she was bouncing around the woods like a deer, marching up and down the hills like a soldier. And it went on and on like that. And it really was catchy. It was pretty powerful. It was like, as Tom Ackerman would say, it's like homemade horseradish. It just, you couldn't ignore it. And the ad uh, played for a while, and, and a lot of people got a kick out of it and came and bought snowshoes as a result. And... Um, I thought that was pretty fun, but, uh, Bob, the other thing that I'd like to talk to you about, um, it, more in, in, in depth is, um, uh, with, with the drift boating, um, we, we started guiding drift boating. And of course I, I still do a lot of guiding of drift boating, but, um, talk to me a little bit about when you were learning, uh, to row the drift boat, like some of the sections of river that we had around us, cause it was, it was a different time then. We had good fishing everywhere around us. then. I remember like putting in behind Janet Mills farm on the South Strong Road and catching trout down, uh, coming down into, uh, on the Sandy River and Androscoggin and of course Solon. But you talk a little bit about some of the things you remember about the early days of drift boating.
1: One of the discoveries that we made, Mike, it wasn't just the rivers. We, We focused a lot on the Kennebec from Solon down to Madison, which is a beautiful stretch of river. Uh, It's tough, tougher fishing now than it was back then. Uh, We also did the East Outlet, which was, uh, it wouldn't want to be the first place that you rode. I'll tell you that. Uh, It was dangerous, uh, outright dangerous. And it was because of your skill that we were able to do that, had a success story there. But what I wanted to lead up to is we didn't understand how good the drift boats were at fishing ponds and lakes because they were a comfortable platform and you could take an an older person who certainly knew how to fly fish but they just lost the ability to wade and you could take 20 years off their life. Um, I remember more than one 95 year old in the boat and they just about cried when they were done with that day because they really didn't think they could get to those fish ever again. And it was, it was a, it was a pleasure and an honor to, uh, guide some of those folks. It really
0: was something that comes to mind when you say that is how many people that I can remember that I guide have guided in the drift boat, that I was the last person they ever fished with. Because of the very reason that you just said that that we gave them, we bought them more years of fishing. But by by virtue of this magic carpet uh, on the river or the pond or the lake, they, where they could spend time getting access to these tough places, that they, their legs and their knees and their hips and their joints and their energy level just couldn't carry them to any longer. And they were so grateful for it. And and you know, helping people into a boat and out of the boat and helping them into their car. They just, it added years, it literally added years to their fly fishing, and and that's an interesting point that you bring that up. Um, I also remember uh, us having a really great time over on the Androscoggin uh, in the the area kind of around where, um, in Gilead, with uh, Steve Wilson and the whole tribe from the CCA group. Do you remember us doing a lot of guiding over there with them?
1: Yes, and when we originally went over there and looked around, it, I'll never forget the day that you and I went down, and the fish were lined up. Great big rainbows were lined up, almost like uh, fishing in the west. It was more like fish. That stretch of river was more like fishing in the west than it was our typical fishing around here. The fish were just lined up. You'd catch the bottom one, then you'd catch the next one up. Oh, they were gigantic rainbows jumping there, which were kind of new to us, really. We were used to catching mostly, as Mainers, we were mostly interested in brook trout and salmon. And yes, we would like to enjoy catching a brown trout or two, but uh, rainbows are a relative rarity here in Maine. At least they were back then. And it was a real treat to explore that river, which is gorgeous, I have to say anywhere from the New Hampshire border down. And in fact, up into New Hampshire, we really enjoyed that stretch of river. As did, as I recall, Bob Mallard fished over there quite a lot. Uh, I wanted to just return to your your story about um, the elderly. And I'll never forget the one where you took a gentleman, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but He knew it was going to be his last day of fishing. And he wanted to catch one salmon, one good salmon. And you went down the river and by God, you did caught a nice salmon. And I say you, and I mean the guide always participates in helping the angler catch fish. And I'll never forget you telling me he folded his rod up and said, I'm done you rode him to the takeout, and that was the last you ever saw him. And I, I I, think of that, and I think, what a treat it was for that man. That's the way I would like to go, personally.
0: Yeah, Bob, I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I forgot about that, but since you brought it up, it's all coming back to me now, and I'd like to just share that experience with the audience a little bit. Uh, again, as Bob said, this guy, this guy literally had a week to live. Uh, that's what his doctors had told him. And he was in the front of my boat. It was June. It was very warm out. There were insects coming off everywhere. Everyone was fishing with dry flies. And he put on a uh, a streamer fly, a long uh, shank, main-style streamer fly. He was wearing a barb- barbore coat and a sweater, and it was 80 degrees out, so this tells you that he was at the end of his life. And uh, people were catching fish all around us, and I really wanted to talk to him about getting a drag-free drift with a dry fly and all this, but I just knew to just shut my mouth, which, you know, being a good guide sometimes is knowing when to not talk. And I, um, so I ended up dropping down below the railroad trestle because there wasn't anybody there. I was on the east outlet. And he, we caught this beautiful hen salmon on the, on the streamer fly. And I net the fish, and he looked at the fish and nodded his head and motioned with his hand to put it back, which I did. And as I'm putting the fish, the fishing net back in the bottom of the boat where we store it uh, in a drift boat, uh, I look, and he's folding his rod up. And uh, the line kind of falls down through the fishing guides. And he puts the, the fly, his hands, are, his hands are trembling, and he puts the, the fly into, uh, into the wallet and rolls it up, and snap, snaps the wallet shut, and tucks it into his jacket, and just sits down. And I actually don't think he said, I'm done. I just knew he was done. And he just sat there with the rod straight up in the air, and I just lifted up the anchor, and we went down to the beach pool. And it was, that was it. It was, oh, I almost cried. I, I probably did cry a little bit. I don't remember. But it was... It was. It was definitely. It reminds you how lucky we all are to just do what we do and go where we go and who we spend it with. It's so important to live every day to the fullest, and you do that, Bob Dion. Uh, you, you know that's one of the things you've taught me, and you've had such, such a huge footprint in my life, and I cannot thank you enough. And I know that we 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 do a lot for each other. We have a mutualistic relationship. We've done a lot to help each other. Um, but you more than anybody else, you've been the person that's guided me along because one of the things that I think I just want to finish with um, before we sign off is I want to talk about how Bob is a consultant. And what a consultant really does is they look at someone or something and they can see how to improve it. And I I talked, I touched on it a little bit in Bob's intro, but he truly is a natural, he's a visionary. He can see things that other people can't see. He can see mistakes people are making that they don't know they're making and he always taught me in my guiding that if I was going to be successful as a guide I needed to look at the guiding career as a ladder and that it never that you had to keep adding rungs if you were going to be doing travel or instruction or you needed to have different water you always needed to have something new to do and a big part of what Bob always had something to add was the history and I know that talk to me a little bit just before we close out Bob about your interest in in fly fishing history and, and and what but why Maine was so perfect for us
1: well I'm a lifelong mainer and my family's been here since the revolutionary war and I had an ancestor that fought in the revolutionary war and I had another ancestor that died in the civil war and, uh so i've I've always been interested in in maine history and that group morphed into the history of fly fishing so i've always been interested in that um
0: and i can't remember what you asked me mike well i just rangely has so much fly fishing history and we were on the main road to rangely and i think that you just took on this um passion for learning all about it and 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 you know you and billy pierce together are the two people that i know that really really have the history of fly fishing main fly fishing uh, you're just very, ver- you're versed in it. You, you know, you can speak the history of, of main fly fishing as well as anybody.
1: Well, I'd, here's the comment I would make, Mike. Um, I've had my days when, sure, the clients landed a lot of fish. And that's really wonderful. But I also remember the days when we didn't catch a damn thing. But people were interested in what the river was about. What the history of the section of river was about. And frankly I received as good a tips on the days when I didn't catch a damn fish as uh, because of sharing the history of the place. So I always thought you gotta know something about where you have been. You gotta know what it was like 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 50 years ago And in your case, because you have Native American heritage, a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. The reason I bring that up is I I heard the address, the First Nations address uh, of Maine tribes uh, describing some of their history. And I really got a sense of appreciation of those folks because rivers were so important to them. And I can't help but think of your heritage and going back not a couple hundred years, not 500 years, not 5,000 years, but even more. And I really respect those Native yeah. Americans, and I appreciate all my time on their rivers.
0: Absolutely, Bob, and I mean, we, we all have a legacy, and, and you certainly have a legacy, and a lot of people who've met Bob Dion or been touched by Bob Dion uh, are are very often very fond of Bob Dion, and I think that, uh, it, again, it brings me great pleasure to have spent the last hour talking with you, Bob, sharing some of the fun stories, and uh, talking a little bit about the imprint that uh, you you had in, in the Farmington uh, business community and in the uh, main guiding community, both uh, your... You're a very uh, well-respected person, and and everyone knows and loves you. So thank you for joining us, Bob.
1: Mike, I want to say thank you again for this opportunity. And as you said earlier, we could talk for a thousand hours about fun things that we've done. We've just scratched the surface. Uh, But thanks for this little bit of time. I appreciate it.
0: It means a lot to us, Bob. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM.